Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, November 4th and 5th, 2021. Enjoy the episodes. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. Now we're going to begin today's conference with a welcome from today's chair, Dr. Paul Feuerstadt. Dr. Stu Johnson will be chairing tomorrow's session, but we'll begin today's with an overview of the foundation and the C. diff infection from Dr. Feuerstadt, Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine's Packed Gastroenterology Center. So let me go ahead and set up your slides, Dr. Feuerstadt, and it is just a delight to have you with us. Welcome to you, sir. Thank you so much, and thank you everybody who's attending today. It's, it's a delight to be having this virtual conference today, and I want to welcome everybody to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. We're all so excited to be here virtually and hopefully next year in person. I want to start out by just giving people a, an idea of what the foundation is and what it's about. And the C. diff Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2012 and comprised 100% of volunteer professionals really dedicated to supporting public health through education and advocating for C. difficile infection, including prevention, treatments, clinical trials, environmental safety, as well as support worldwide. Before we really get into the conference, I think it's important that we acknowledge that we did lose a real pioneer in the last year with regards to C. difficile infection, and that's Dr. John Bartlett. I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Bartlett at the conference in 2014 uh, the third annual CETA Foundation Conference, when Dr. Bartlett was, was honored by the foundation. He really was a visionary in the HIV-AIDS and C. difficile space. A lot of us have seen a lot of information over the last 18 months with regards to the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States and John Hopkins University Division of Infectious Disease. And a lot of the core of that Division of Infectious Disease was started with Dr. Bartlett's uh, leadership and tutelage over the years. Dr. Bartlett was one of the first people in the late 1970s to acknowledge the connection between antibiotic-associated diarrhea and what he called, quote, the bug, which was the bug that was identified back in the 1930s by Hall and O'Toole. But Dr. Bartlett wasn't just limited to HIV, AIDS, and C. difficile infection. He was a true pioneer with regards to community-acquired pneumonia. He focused on antimicrobial resistance, as well as anaerobic infections and bioterrorism. We did lose Dr. Bartlett on January 19, 2021, and we all appreciate all of his significant contributions to the world of infectious disease as well as C. difficile infection. And Dr. Bartlett was very focused on research 
and I'm really delighted to report that we have poster sessions at this conference as well. And the poster sessions in a virtual format take the form of video presentation by the poster presenters, and this can be found on the conference webpage. So please link across to those poster presentations for further knowledge and further information on the latest in the world of C. difficile infection. The CETA Foundation Health and Expo Conference annually could not happen without the support of both its exhibitors as well as sponsors. So we are greatly thankful to all of the exhibitors and all of the sponsors that help us get, make this conference happen. Our diamond sponsor this year is Series Therapeutics. Our platinum sponsor is Fearing Pharmaceuticals Microbiome Therapeutics Development. Our audio sponsor is Accia RX. Our gold sponsors are Multitude, Destiny Pharma, Vedanta Biosciences, Clorox Healthcare, Finch, Summit Therapeutics, as well as Pfizer. Silver sponsors include Acura RX, Tech Lab, PDI, Be the Difference. Our bronze sponsors include Davolterra, Mimed, Crestone, SafetyNet, La Jolla, Applied Silver, as well as Trinity Guardian. The CETA Foundation does a multitude of things to help in the world of C. difficile infection, and one of those is the Global Telesupport Network. Each month, there are multiple opportunities for patients, caregivers to learn about C. difficile infection from experts in the field. One happens to be caregiver support, another is digestive health support, which I participate in with Dr. Katerina Onetto, and the other is nutritional support with Karen Factor. So these are opportunities for patients to ask questions that they might not feel comfortable asking their providers during office visits or just so that they can learn more about the infection itself. The CDEF nationwide hotline is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. Each week throughout the year, Nancy Corella, the foundress of the foundation, conducts an interview, and that interview is a radio program called CDEF Spores and More. I've had the opportunity to participate in this on a number of occasions, and I myself have learned a lot from these sessions, and my hope is that patients as well as providers learn a lot from these sessions, focusing on C. difficile and other topics relevant to C. difficile. We are greatly appreciative to Clorox Healthcare for their support, and believe it or not, we will be entering our seventh season starting in January of 2022. These sessions are recorded Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Each year, the, the CDF Global Awareness Walk has been occurring over the last five years, and this September was even bigger than the year before. Each year, it grows and grows and really enhances the public's understanding, hopefully, of C. difficile, drawing attention to this potentially devastating infection. The CETA Foundation would also like to acknowledge an innovation, and that innovation this year is phone soap. I actually acquired my first phone soap in December of 2019 as a holiday gift, and it actually came in really handy during the pandemic, because what a phone soap does is you put your phone, which is something that we carry everywhere with us and attracts tons of microorganisms, you put it in a device, and that device essentially sterilizes it. It takes about five minutes to do and can make a huge difference. And this is a real significant innovation, hopefully in infection control, and I know everyone in my family has one now. 
Twice a year, the CETA Foundation has the Patient, Family, Caregiver, and Survivors Live Online Symposium. We did the most recent one earlier this week, and it was a huge success, providing information in the space of C. difficile infection, but at an understandable and non-technical level, so that patients can feel like they are empowered with the knowledge of what's happening with C. difficile, where we've been, and hopefully where we're going, with a number of factors, including therapeutics and infection control. Last year, Nancy Corella created an app called the C. diff community in the palm of your hand, C. diff and you. That app is available from the Apple Store and Google Play Store. Importantly, this app provides comprehensive information for patients and caregivers that allow people and patients the ability to understand the infection and empower themselves to have educated conversations with their providers about their care. November is C. diff Awareness Month, and this is why this conference is conducted every November. We are really grateful to a number of state governors who have acknowledged CDF Awareness Month in the form of a proclamation, including Arkansas, Georgia, Illinois, Minnesota, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and West Virginia. In the last year, Nancy Corella and Karen Factor published a book that I've been giving to my patients to allow them to gain more knowledge about C. difficile infection. That book is Managing a C. difficile Infection, and it's available through Amazon, the book patch, as well as Barnes & Noble. And finally, we hopefully will be able to meet in person next year at the 10th annual CETA Foundation Conference that's scheduled for November 3rd through 4th, 2022. I know I have certainly circled those dates on my calendar and cleared my schedule, and my hope is all of us will do that as well. Now, before I go ahead and cover my topic, which will be a brief introduction to C. difficile infection, I think it's really important to acknowledge Nancy Corella. Nancy is the foundress of the CETA Foundation and the mastermind behind all of these different innovative programs, the app, the books, the support network, the walks, and everything else. Nancy has been tireless in her work in educating and helping patients and providers gain knowledge so that we more effectively treat C. difficile infection. Nancy wasn't able to participate today, but we look forward to her participation in the future. Thank you so much, Nancy, for this opportunity. I know all of us look forward to this conference on an annual basis. So I want to shift gears now, and I want to talk briefly about C. difficile infection. And this is going to be kind of like an appetizer for a lot more detail that we will see throughout the conference. So let's talk a little bit about the epidemiology of C. difficile infection. And it should come as no surprise to anybody who's participating today that in 2011 and then again in 2019, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a threat level of urgent for C. difficile infection. Plainly stated, this is a true epidemic. And this is some data that looks at the epidemiology over about the last decade, published in the New England Journal in 2020 by Gu and colleagues, looks at the incidents in the United States and found that in 2011, the incidence was estimated to be 476,400 individuals. In 2017, that was estimated to be 365,200 individuals, a seeming decrease in the incidence of infection, but an important caveat here that gets into diagnostics. Within the 2011 cohort, the bulk of the diagnostics used in the U.S. was the enzyme-linked immunoassay, which, when it's positive, is most likely to be a true positive. That shifted significantly in 2017 to a higher percentage of the PCR assay, or the polymerase chain reaction. It turns out that the PCR assay has a tendency to over-diagnose C. difficile. So in order to compare apples to apples, 
the numbers were, were altered in a way to correct for this change in diagnostics. So we see the incidence seems to have decreased, but the number of positive tests overall remained about the same. Importantly, there seemed to be a change in healthcare-associated infections and community-associated infections. Healthcare-associated infections are any infections that occur greater than 72 hours after admission to the hospital or within 90 days of discharge from the hospital. In 2011, healthcare-associated infections accounted for about two-thirds of all the infections. In 2017, that was about 50%. So it was a decrease. But when you look at the absolute numbers, the decrease was on the healthcare-associated infection side. The community-associated infections stayed about the same. Why have we seen decreases in healthcare-associated infections? Antimicrobial stewardship, infection control, as well as other systems that the healthcare systems have put in to decrease the incidence. And we're going to learn about all these in more detail throughout the conference. Importantly, though, we're seeing more refractory C. difficile infection. This is data from Ma et al. published in 2017, looking from 2001 to 2012. The incidence of C. difficile during that time frame increased 42.7%, but the incidence of multiply recurrent C. difficile, that increased 188.8%. So not only were we seeing more C. difficile, we were seeing more refractory disease, disease that was harder to treat. So learning about more innovative treatments through conferences like this will make a difference in our patients' lives. Let's now shift gears and talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of C. difficile. And it's important to understand that two main things need to happen for us to get C. difficile. One, we need to be exposed to the bacteria. And two, there needs to be something called dysbiosis, which is an alteration of the gut microbiota from whatever an individual's baseline is. And I'll take us back to our textbook years and remind us that C. difficile is a gram-positive, spore-forming, anaerobic rod. And there are two main phases of C. difficile infection, the spore phase and the vegetative phase. As a clinician, most of us think about the vegetative phase as C. difficile, because the vegetative phase is the phase that releases two main toxins, toxin A and toxin D, most commonly associated with the diarrheal syndrome of C. difficile. The vegetative phase is susceptible to gastric acid and susceptible to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Plainly stated, when it comes in contact with these things, it gets wiped out. Alternatively, the spore phase is a much more resistant phase. The spore phase is resistant to gastric acid and resistant to alcohol-based hand sanitizers. In fact, the spore phase can last on dry surfaces on the order of six months and remain viable. The spore phase is what explains the spread of C. difficile, but also recurrence of C. difficile infection. So how do we actually get infected with C. difficile? Classically, what happens is we swallow the spore phase. It's resistant to our gastric acid, gets through our gastric acid into our small bowel, where there's a conversion to the vegetative phase. The vegetative phase multiplies, divides, and multiplies some more as it builds an army heading towards the colon. But as you heard, I'm a gastroenterologist. I think the colon is a brilliant organ, and the colon is a brilliant organ because the colon has its own defense system independent of the bloodborne defense system that protects it. What's that defense system? The microbiota or colonization resistance. What classically weakens that colonization resistance? Amoxicillin, ampicillin, clarithromycin, fluoroquinolones, cephalosporins, hypercillin, tazobactam. We have an alteration of the microbiota creating an environment that's more welcoming for the C. difficile. The C. difficile proliferates and typically causes abdominal pain and diarrhea. It can also cause an ileus, and rarely it can cause a devastating complication called a megacolon. Now, what happens to the microbiota? We spoke about the bacteria. 
But what happens to the microbiota? And I view three main shifts or three main alterations to the microbiota as being important for us to understand. The first is microbiota suppression. And what I mean by this is the alteration in the microbiota that leads to the infection in the first place or the recurrence. And a very basic but important study looked into this that was published in 2008 from Michigan State University. They looked at three individuals who were controls, no C. difficile, four individuals with initial infection, and three individuals with recurrent C. difficile. They then compared the constituency of the microbiota, what was there, and the diversity, the variability. And what did they find? When they compared no infection with initial infection, there were no statistically significant differences. But when they compared initial infection with recurrent infection, there was a statistically significant depletion of the diversity with a decrease of the bacteroidetes and the firmicutes. So two important concepts come from this study. One is with initial infection, the microbiota is essentially bent but not broke. This is why recurrence rates with initial infection are lower than once the microbiota is broken with recurrence and we have to completely replete the microbiota either naturally or supplement the microbiota to decrease future rates of recurrence. The second concept comes from a study from 1992, almost 30 years ago, but still very clinically relevant from Dr. Johnson and Dr. Gerding, both participants in this conference. Within this study, they looked at a group of individuals who were colonized with C. difficile, meaning they had it in their system, but they didn't have active infection. A group of them received placebo, a group of them received vancomycin, and then they checked their stool eight weeks later. It turns out the group that received vancomycin, 67% or two-thirds of the patients still had C. difficile within their system. The group that received placebo, 11%. Well, that's head-scratching. Think about that. Vancomycin should theoretically eradicate the C. difficile. I would like to now take the opportunity to introduce Dr. Simon Cutting. Dr. Cutting is a bacterial geneticist working in the School of Biological Sciences at the Royal Holloway University of London. Dr. Cunning has been a consistent contributor to this conference. It's nice to see him year after year here, active and presenting, and I'm excited to hear his talk this year entitled, What Makes Us Susceptible to C. difficile Infection? Simon, thank you so much for, for participating today all the way from London. All right, Paul, thank you very much. And it's a pleasure once again presenting at this conference. I actually presented at the very first one, and um, uh, it's good to be back. So, um, as Paul mentioned, I'm a bacterial geneticist. I've worked on C. difficile probably for the last 12 years, and um, I'm going to try to make this talk uh, at a general level quite interesting, possibly a little bit challenging. I myself have developed a prophylactic to Clostridium difficile, which I believe will enter the U.S. markets next year. Um, I've also coordinated a clinical trial um, for C. difficile. Um, but as you can see from the, the title of this talk, um, I'm really going to look here at what are the underlying factors which are linked to the, um, your susceptibility to acquiring C. difficile infection. So on the next slide, um, which I probably have to do myself, I'm sorry, I'm a very bad learner. Um, I make this go forward. So it's the, it's the little control panel on the left side of your screen, that little bubble, remember? And the, yes, the, the I down remember arrow. Those. Yeah, got go. it, okay. Perfect. Yes. So first of all, just some, some of the 
unanswered questions um, regarding C. difficile, um, things you might think about. For example, the rise in infections over the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, 100 years ago, or prior to World War II, um, C. difficile was relatively, um, there was very low reporting. One explanation, of course, is that we didn't have the tools that we have today um, to recognize this pathogen. But there are other possibilities that this is possibly a disease which is emerging, just as we have other diseases emerging um, in the last 20, 30 years. Why do we have the appearance of uh, C. difficile infection in infants? What's causing this? Community-acquired CDI. Why is this? What is the, as Paul mentioned, what is the role of the gut microbiota in controlling or influencing the risk of C. difficile infection? And last but not least, is there something about the United States, North America, why you have so much C. difficile infection compared to other countries? So, I'm going to show you here just an interesting observation, which is known in, in the field, that if you look at some um, newborn infants, within the first two years of their life, approximately the first two years, um, C. difficile is present in the gut of those newborns. It's not pathogenic. There's no disease. But after about uh, two years, 24 months, C. difficile has declined, almost so it's undetectable. If you look at pigs, newborn piglets, C. difficile is also present in newborns, newborn piglets. But the C. difficile declines and becomes extinguished after about two months. So to reiterate, Newborn infants, C. difficile is present without causing disease for 24 months. But for newborn piglets, the same occurs, but the C. difficile has disappeared after two months. So you're asked the question, why am I comparing pigs to humans? Well, of course, in science, pigs are extremely close to humans. Their physiology their immunity, their size is almost identical to humans. But there's one difference which is obvious to everyone, and that is the environs. The, the environments in which pigs live is outside, and of course, their diets and nutrition. And with the exception, of course, of maybe some of your 18-year-old children or students, generally humans live in a cleaner environment. So the word clean, um, we began to investigate this scientifically. So how do you look at cleanliness in animals? Very difficult. Um, so in science, we have animals which are, shall we say, dirty. And we have animals which are completely sterile. In science, we call them germ-free animals. But it's also possible to replicate something in the middle. That is, we take mice and we house them, sometimes for up to a year, in an environment which is, we call it, super clean. The air is sterile and the food is sterile. 
the animal lives in environments which is super clean. And what we find is if we try to infect those animals, either super clean animals or normal animals, with C. difficile, the super clean animals are more susceptible to C. difficile infection. So there's something about a super clean environment that makes an animal more susceptible. And we can address this experimentally. And we've been able to show, um, well, uh, let me just remind you of one other observation here, which is um, fecal microbiota transplantation, which again, Paul mentions. Of course, we all know that if you take uh, feces, homogenize this, and administer it um, to humans, it's highly efficacious, I believe, more than 90%. In fact, you can then ask the question, are there bacteria in the um, feces which have a beneficial effect? And in fact, you can use um, genetic tools, microbiomics, to actually analyze particular bacteria in the feces. And you can then prepare a formulation of these bacteria, administer them to an animal or to a human, and show that C. difficile infection is suppressed or abolished, and it's fantastic. But there are some caveats with this. Firstly, there are scientific publications showing that if you take human feces and separate the bacteria from the liquid, the liquor, the liquid itself, which is free of bacteria, is able to suppress C. difficile infection. So this says suggests at least that there's something present in the liquid suspension, possibly produced by bacteria, which is active. And that could either be a bacteriophage, a virus, or it could be something secreted by bacteria. So we have been able, for the last five years, we've been working with environmental bacteria bacteria which are acquired from the environment. They enter our gastrointestinal tract. These bacteria are what we call allocothonous. It means they can live in the environment, but they can also live in a host. And that is different from the normal autocothonous bacteria, which only live in our gut. And we've shown that some of these bacteria produce molecules which are highly efficacious at killing C. difficile. In fact, they form what we refer to as mycelials. So in the middle panel of this slide is a nice cartoon showing one of these mycelials. And we know the size of these mycelials. It's like an empty football, if you like, which is the size is between 7 to 10 nanometers. So it's a tiny molecule. This is produced by bacteria. And on the left is an electron micrograph, which is impossible to see at this size. It just shows little dots. But we can actually visualize these molecules. And if we add these molecules to C. difficile, they are extremely efficient killing C. difficile. And remember, these are produced by environmental bacteria, 
which are present in very low numbers in the gut, but the molecule is particularly potent. Ah, now we have the slide. Would you like to start the slide, or am I just skipping it? I'll skip it. We've been able to look at the molecule, and um, we can show that in animal samples, um, animals which are treated with clindamycin, which induces C. difficile, or animals which are normal animals, naive animals, we can detect these molecules within the animal gut. So in the thick blue line, those are samples taken from naive animals, and the molecules are present by the blue peaks, and we know the identity of these molecules. But in animals treated with clindamycin, an antibiotic, the molecule is absent. And that is because clindamycin kills the environmental bacteria which produce these molecules. And um, we've also been able to show that the mycelles are able to synergize. They actually fuse with secondary bile acids, which are also micellar in nature. Um, and when they fuse with secondary bile acids, the activity, their activity against C. difficile is increased. We can also show in animal experiments, these are experiments we've done, I think, about 18 times now, that in the case of Syrian hamsters, the hamster you can see on the right, if we take hamsters and we administer these molecules as a solution by the oral roots, they are fully protected against C. difficile infection. And next year, we'll find out if the case is true with humans. So what I've sort of summarized very quickly is, first of all, that environmental bacteria produce micellar antibiotics that are lethal to C. difficile. So we, from that, we know that if you reduce exposure to environmental bacteria, you will increase susceptibility to C. difficile infection. Antibiotics such as vancomycin and clindamycin, they will kill many of these environmental bacteria, so they enable C. difficile to proliferate, which is why you get infection. And micellar antibiotics complex with secondary bile acids, forming what we call mixed micelles, with even greater killing activity. So coming back to the title of the talk, it should be obvious to all that the Western lifestyle, the lifestyle we have in the United Kingdom and of course in America, North America, is a particularly clean environment. You're not aware of this because maybe at the weekend you go hiking to Yosemite National Park or wherever, but if you consider your day-to-day -day life and I use an example there of chlorinated chickens, the food we eat, our sedentary lifestyle, we sit behind a computer or an iPhone, we drive to the takeout restaurant eatery to get food. Our life is now devoid of contact with environmental bacteria. And this very much relates to something referred to as the hygiene hypothesis 
which is the driver for why we have the increase in allergies post-World War II. And of course, we can now relate this very much to, should we say, North America, which I'm afraid to say you're probably one of the worst, you're the cleanest, um, but you're also seeing a rise now in C. difficile infection. You're managing this, but you're still seeing the rise. And lastly, on the last slide, um, we can sort of summarize this by looking at the risks, so one of which I mentioned, which is our lifestyle, our lack of exposure to environmental bacteria. But also in 2018 and then 2019, we've also seen other contributing factors. Firstly, our diet, which is deficient in fibers, which has been linked to an increased risk of C. difficile infection. And secondly, and finally, the increased diet, uh, glucose-rich diet, is increasing, increasing the speciation, the, the number of more virulent, potentially more virulent species of C. difficile, which are now afflicting us. So we have a number of factors relating to our lifestyle, which is driving the impact of this pathogen. And I think I can sum it up there. So I hope that was clear, clear enough. And Paul, yeah. I hand it back to you, the talk back to you. Oh, Simon, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of food for thought there. Um, video is really telling also the, the micro environment, the, the question of, of what within the microbiota, whether it's the suspension or whether it's the microorganisms and the metabolomic effects, we're talking about secondary bile salts and other metabolic impacts that the microbiota has is a complex interplay. Um, and we're really, you know, digging a little bit deeper with C. difficile and obviously starting to scratch the surface with other diseases. So thank you for that wonderful, wonderful overview. Now we're going to shift from susceptibility to C. difficile and focus on prevention. And my site was delighted to participate in the Pfizer trial considering a novel vaccine for the prevention of this devastating infection. I am proud to introduce Dr. Moisey. Dr. Moisey has her PhD in international health, and she is currently the vice president and, glo and global franchise lead for tick-borne diseases and enteric vaccines at Pfizer. Dr. Moisey, thank you so much for being here today to discuss development of a vaccine with the potential to prevent C. difficile infection. Dr. Moisey? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Paul, and, and um, good morning, everyone, and, and thank you for being here to attend this presentation. I'm very grateful to the C. diff Foundation uh, for the opportunity to present here today. Um, it's actually my first time attending the conference and, and my first time pre presenting, and uh, I'm proud to be able to um, give you uh, the latest um, information on Pfizer's efforts to develop a vaccine with the potential to prevent Clostridioides difficile infection, or CDI. So um, as has already been uh, presented uh, partially in the general overview, um, C. difficile is a gram-positive anaerobic spore-forming pathogen that can asymptomatically colonize the human colon. In its vegetative form, uh, C. diff will produce toxins, toxins A and B, that may cause a range of clinical symptoms, including watery diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea, and fever, and may also result in severe outcomes, including pseudomembranous colitis and death. 
the main risk factor for CDI is the gut dysbiosis that follows antibiotic use, but we also had uh, some much more in-depth uh, explanations uh, here today in the previous talk uh, about other uh, factors in our environment and in our lifestyle that are risk factors for CDI. In the United States, uh, according to CDC surveillance, approximately 450,000 cases and 19,000 deaths uh, due to CDI occur each year. And this has led the CDC to um, qualify C. diff as an urgent public health threat. There's currently no vaccine to help prevent initial or recurrent C. difficile infections. So um, this is also a topic that was touched on pre briefly in the previous presentation, um, but I do want to come back to it and highlight that although a C. diff is generally thought of as a healthcare-associated infection, if you look at the data from uh, the U.S. Uh, CDC's Emerging Infections Program, uh, surveillance has shown that healthcare-associated CDI, um, which is shown um, here in blue, on, uh, in dark blue here on this um, graph, had decreased between 2011 and 2018 from an incidence of 93 per 100,000 to 64 per 100,000. And I'm trying to remember how to use the pointer. There we go. Okay, so this was the healthcare-associated CDI, which has decreased by nearly one-third over uh, an eight-year period of surveillance. In contrast, community-associated CDI, which is shown in this green, has actually increased from about 48 per 100,000 per year to 66 cases per 100,000 per year, again, um, in the United States at national level. So overall, although healthcare-associated CDI has decreased due to efforts um, to control the disease in with infection control uh, and antibiotic stewardship, the overall incidence of CDI has remained relatively stable. And this really emphasizes that in order to make progress in controlling C. diff in the United States and globally, uh, we will need other prevention tools, um, and that's why Pfizer has decided to develop a vaccine. So um, C. difficile infection is mediated by uh, toxins A and toxin B. And we know that other toxin-based diseases like diphtheria, cholera, and tetanus can be prevented by either antitoxin antibodies or toxoid vaccines. We also know um, that bezlotoximab, toxin B monoclonal antibody, can prevent the recurrence of C. difficile infection in patients with primary CDI. And this is the principle upon which uh, we base the development of our C. diff vaccine. So we developed a bivalent toxoid vaccine candidate, and we aimed to preserve important antigenic epitopes in order to induce broadly neutralizing antibodies. So how did we proceed? You see here uh, the schematic of toxin A and toxin B, and um, we used targeted mutagenesis in order to genetically modify the sequence of these toxins and then express um, the gene or the new uh, protein in a sporulation-deficient strain of C. difficile to obtain a toxoid, a genetically modified toxin. 
After purification, the toxoid was further chemically inactivated in order to eliminate any residual cytotoxicity and then formulated with aluminum hydroxide. What we obtained is a bivalent toxoid vaccine, including toxoids A and B. And we had um, optimal preservation of these uh, key antigenic epitopes to make sure that we could properly neutralize the toxins. So if you look here um, on the bottom right, um, this graph shows the antigenicity of three different toxoids. So first, toxoid A, which is simply toxin A with genetic modifications, but no chemical inactivation. And uh, the antigenicity for this, in other words, the ability to bind three different monoclonal antibodies um, to toxin A was set to 100%. Those are the bars in blue. Um, we then, with chemical inactivation, we either used uh, formalin inactivation as a control, those are the red bars, or the EDC inactivation in green. And you can see that with the green EDC inactivation, we have a toxoid that has very high antigenicity um, between about 90 and 100% as good as um, the native toxoid, or let's say the genetically modified toxin. Whereas the toxoid that was produced um, through formal inactivation has much lower antigenicity. This is how we created the optimal bivalent toxoid vaccine. We've also shown that our vaccine candidate induces antibodies that can neutralize toxins A and B in an assay regardless of their sequence diversity. So um, you can see here we obtained the genomic sequences from 478 C. difficile isolates that were globally representative, so they came from uh, various geographic regions across the globe. And from uh, these genomic sequences, we identified 44 uh, toxin A variants that had very high degree of sequence homology, so about 98% sequence homology among these toxin A variants, and 40 toxin B variants with 87% um, or more sequence homology. When we look at the ability of uh, human sera, so sera of vaccinated individuals who received our bivalent uh, toxoid vaccine candidate, um, we look at the ability of those sera to neutralize diverse toxin B variants. And um, you can see uh, here in this graph um, the neutralization titers um, for each um, of the toxin B variants and for the variants with 100% homology to the toxin B that was used for uh, the design of our vaccine, all the way down to the 87% homology, so the one that's the most distant from our vaccine toxin uh, from a sequence perspective. And you can see that across the board, we have high levels and relatively comparable levels of neutralizing antibody titers. So this means that individuals who've received our vaccine uh, have antibodies that can neutralize toxin B uh, from a broad variety of uh, geographically representative C. difficile isolates. And we have similar results with toxin A, uh, although I'm not showing the data here on this slide. So this is um, the description of how we designed our vaccine, and we tested it extensively, of course, uh, in the laboratory and through a variety of preclinical experiments. 
And we then uh, went into clinic. This was about uh, eight years ago now in 2012 or early 2013. And we conducted uh, phase one and two um, studies to look at the safety and the immunogenicity of our vaccine in adults 50 to 85 years of age. So the data I'm going to show here is data from our phase two proof of concept study, um, looking at which aimed to look at the safety, tolerability, and immunogenicity of our vaccine candidate at several dose levels and regimens. This was a randomized placebo-control observer-blinded study, and uh, it included 854 healthy adults aged 65 to 85 years of age. So these individuals were randomized three to three to one to receive either um, a low-dose uh, vaccine, 100 microgram with aluminum hydroxide, a high-dose vaccine, 200 microgram with aluminum hydroxide, or a saline placebo. And then within each group, uh, there was further randomization to receive either uh, an accelerated vaccination regimen, so three doses at days one, eight, and 30, or a non-accelerated or extended regimen with three doses at months zero, one, and six. So in the first uh, regimen, all three doses are received within a one-month period. In the second regimen, it takes a full six months to complete the series. And you can think uh, when you consider vaccine implementation, about the advantages and drawbacks of each of these regimens. Um, so these are some of the immunogenicity results from the study. Uh, you can see for the month regimen on the left and the day regimen on the right. Um, we have geometric mean concentrations of toxin B neutralizing antibodies um, for participants in each of the groups. Um, in blue, this is only the 200 microgram dose. We, of course, have also published results for the 100 microgram dose, but I'm not showing them here. So in blue, um, you see overall participants within each group. So if we look at the monthly regimen, uh, the arrows at the bottom of the graph are the timing of each of the doses. So um, zero months, um, zero days, 30 days, and 180 days. This is the zero, one, six-month schedule. And you can see uh, there's an a initial um, neutralizing antibody response to the first dose at day zero, a slight increase in the antibodies at day 30, antibody waning from day 30 through 180, and then a robust anamnestic or memory response after the third dose. And this is observed both um, in the full group, which is in blue, and also in the group that was seronegative at baseline, so that had no detectable toxin B neutralizing antibodies at baseline. In the group that was seropositive at baseline, uh, which is shown in red, you can see that immediately they have a very high level of neutralizing antibodies even after the first dose. So this means that after the first dose, they are already basically uh, having a memory response, right, because they've been pre-exposed and, um, and they have a, a very uh, good immunological response. Um, when we look at the day regimen, uh, the results are actually much less favorable. So here the three doses are, again, at the bottom with arrows here. You can see they're all uh, at days 1, 8, and 30. And all three groups, or let's say both the baseline seronegative and the baseline seropositive, and then the overall group that includes uh, both categories, both groups of subjects, 
um, have sort of overlapping uh, curves here. And you can see um, initial response to the first dose, uh, not much change after the second dose, and only a small uh, increase again after the third dose. And overall, the geometric mean concentrations after dose three are much, much lower than they are in the month regimen. So you can see in the month regimen after dose three, um, the, the blue group is, um, has a GNC of about 10,000 neutralization titers per ml, whereas um, in the day regimen, we're below 1,000, which is much less favorable. And this was the rationale for selecting the month regimen to go forward into our phase three efficacy studies. So our phase one and two studies showed a high level of immunogenicity for the 200 microgram dose administered at zero, one, and six months and good safety and tolerability. We were then able to progress to phase three, which is a large safety and efficacy trial, CLOVER, that includes more than 17,000 subjects in 23 countries uh, across 397 sites. So it's a very, very large endeavor. For all subjects, subjects are randomized to receive are 50 years of age and above and at increased risk of C. difficile infection. They're randomized to receive either vaccine or placebo. And over the course of the study, if they experience diarrhea, they collect a stool specimen which is sent to our central lab for processing and tested using a two-step diagnostic of PCNR, PCR, and cell culture neutralization assay to confirm C. difficile infection. Um, cases of C. difficile infection, of primary C. difficile infection, uh, will then be analyzed to evaluate whether the vaccine can prevent uh, CDI in the study population. So in conclusion, um, as I think we all know, uh, CDI causes significant disease, particular in old, particularly in older adults, both in the community and the healthcare setting. Pfizer is developing a candidate vaccine which was produced using a detoxification process that aims to preserve epitopes that are critical for the production of neutralizing antibodies. This vaccine candidate is formulated with aluminum hydroxide and has been studied in healthy adults aged 50 to 85 years in phase one and two clinical studies and shown good safety, tolerability, and immunogenicity and the selected dose, 200 microgram in a zero, one, and six-month regimen is now being evaluated in a phase three efficacy study, CLOVER, with a primary endpoint of uh, primary C. difficile infection. So we expect to have the results from the CLOVER study in the coming months, and we're very hopeful uh, that we'll then uh, have a successful vaccine that we can uh, submit for regulatory approval um, as quickly as possible thereafter. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moisey. You know, it's, it's uh, wonderful to hear about this, and obviously all of us have been focused on uh, COVID-19 vaccines and the Pfizer contribution in that space. Uh, a lot of us in the C. difficile space have been focused on this as well over the years, and we're eagerly awaiting that data. Um, a lot of interesting things to think about here and a wonderful mechanism of action. So uh, hopefully in the coming months we will hear positive news and uh, our patients will be, uh, will be protected against this devastating infection. Thank you for your presentation and your time. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. 
Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.